0: Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop. It's a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. During the period between October 1919 and 1955, September 1955, that is, four of seven presidents either had a heart attack or a stroke while president. Wilson, Harding, FDR, and Eisenhower. Some presidents, like Eisenhower, had a heart attack and a stroke. It was enough to make you think the office was too much for one man. That was the question raised when Dwight Eisenhower had his first ticker hiccup in office in 1955, which brings us to our story today. In our last whistle stop, I was marveling at how Eisenhower and his administration didn't have to pay attention to the hurricanes of 1955. It was a pretty bad year for hurricanes, and it was five years after a really bad year for hurricanes in 1950, so you might have expected that all national eyes would turn to the man we call the commander-in-chief. But the president wasn't on duty, nor was his government. It was a local affair, they believed at the time, not a part of the presidential brief. So in mid-September, as Hurricane Ione was about to hit the East Coast, Eisenhower was off on vacation. Hurricane Ion, most savage of the season's storms, builds up her fearsome force over the Atlantic as a Navy plane flies into the very heart or eye of the hurricane, 15,000 feet above the churning sea sucking up billions of gallons of water and packing 125-mile-an-hour winds, my own careens crazily, aimlessly along the eastern coast. Not only was there no fuss at the time that he was off on vacation when the hurricane was bearing down on the plywood blocking the windows, But it was a subject of some mirth in the newspapers. Here's a whimsical piece about Vice President Richard Nixon that references the president's vacation on September 18, 1955, the very day that the hurricane made landfall. How was he enjoying Mr. Eisenhower's vacation, the piece asked about the vice president? Fine, Nixon said. We get a little more sleep around Washington. He has the ungodly habit of getting up early. Nixon was a Navy man, and Eisenhower was an Army man, and somehow... This was the subtext in that statement. But regardless of whether it was the subtext or not, can you imagine a vice president saying that they were sleeping later while the hurricane bore down upon the eastern seaboard? Well, anyway, as I was rooting around in all of this, at the same time period, I was noticing on the front pages of the paper how light Eisenhower's schedule seemed by the time, and yet how very popular he was. 67% approval rating, 75% of independents approved of him. And then this occurred to me as being interesting. Eisenhower was, you could argue, the first life hacking president. For our purposes, what this means is that he had some attention to the shortcuts, regimens, and actions that kept him efficient and trim in his daily per- perambulations. One of the first times I ran into this Eisenhower penchant for life hacking was his quadrant system. This was the system for quickly categorizing work. Anything you had to deal with fit in one of four groups. Quadrant one were things that were urgent and important. Quadrant two, not urgent, but important. Quadrant three, urgent and unimportant. Quadrant four, not urgent and unimportant. These categories are really useful, but so is the exercise itself, which is to say knowing how to break up big events into little groupings that make those events more manageable. So, If you haven't divined it already, Q2 is where you really want to spend most of your time doing things that are important but not urgent, because if you do them, then they won't become urgent and important later. Use this quadrant system. Stay out of quadrant four, not urgent and unimportant, which is to say the Kardashian quadrant. Spend your time in quadrant two. You'll lead a better life or you'll become president. Anyway, Eisenhower knew about efficiency and management because, of course, he'd been a general and a university president. He brought these tactics and strategies to the White House. It's one of the curious things about Donald Trump that he doesn't bring systems and efficiencies with him from private enterprise. Or if he has, we haven't heard about it yet. The White House has relied on systems because of its new chief of staff, John Kelly. But that's only to impose on the chaos that was brought by the president. Again, military order imposed upon chaos. Anyway, Eisenhower also paid attention to his health and fitness in a way that sought to make him more efficient. Remember how Nixon was interested in how you could sleep less? Haldeman wrote about that in his diaries, and we discussed it in our Chief of Staff episode. Nixon wanted to know about these sleep studies that allowed you to be effective even with getting a fewer number of hours of sleep in a night because he wanted to crank more into his day. Eisenhower, of course, was the opposite sort. Historian Clarence Lasby writes about how Eisenhower focused on getting enough downtime in his day and his life. He focused on this when he came back from serving overseas. I do not again become neglectful of exercise and proper care of myself. Eisenhower said he had, quote, thoroughly tested and proved the virtues of a complete and absolute rest. And Eisenhower, in speaking with his brother, said that in the future he intended to take not... Less than a total of 10 weeks of vacation every year. Here again is Eisenhower. My experience has convinced me that there most certainly is such a thing as overwork. For the rest of my life, I am going to work at avoiding that particular disease. Well, this is important, of course, because this sense of the balance between vacation and work would be important because Eisenhower was occasionally criticized for going on vacation. But and also was used by other presidents, Clinton, Obama, Trump, as an example of why it's okay to go golfing so much. But for Eisenhower, I guess the point here is that it was central to his sense of the proper balance that was required to do the actual job. Anyway, it's a president you can get behind who believes in that kind of vacation. But it suggests a model of the presidency, which is the reason we're here in the booth today, where you don't always have to come jumping through the hoop to show your... On the job. The executive branch, Hamilton said, was an office of energy, but let's not overdo it. Calvin Coolidge, of course, is the supreme excellent example of this. He believed that a national leader should not try to go, quote, ahead of the majestic army of human thought and aspiration, blazing new and strange paths. This is uh, perhaps why he took long naps and sometimes slept 14 out of 24 hours, though that may also have been the, due to the death of his son while he was in office. Anyway, Eisenhower, with his belief of the balance between work and rest, was, of course, on vacation in September, on the 23rd of September in particular, and he set out to go golfing. He was exuberant up until the 14th hole of that first golf game that he played that day. He played multiple games of golf, but then he started to get angry. He kept getting interrupted. He was informed that Secretary of State John Foster Dulles had called to speak to him. He interrupted his game, plopped down on the cushy seat of the golf cart one, and sped, such as one can in a golf cart, to the clubhouse to take the call. But by the time he got to the clubhouse to take the call, the president was told that Dulles was on his way to an event and would call back an hour later. That meant the president, unfulfilled by the information on the phone call, returned to golf cart one and wound his way back to the course where he had left his ball. Then, when an hour had passed and he had pushed the ball around, He returned to the clubhouse again for the appointed hour, initiated the phone call, but this time the call couldn't happen because there was a bug in the phone line. It wasn't working. So the president returned to the golf court, sped through the trees, past the sand traps and to where his ball was. Upon arriving back to where he had been, he was called back to where he had just been, that is to say the clubhouse. The problem with the phone line had been fixed. Back to the golf cart, back past the sand traps and the trees. Finally, on the third try, he spoke to the Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles. The phone call concluded, then it was back to the golf course. But this was not the end of the interruptions. An hour or so later, Eisenhower was told that Dulles was on the phone, and so he backtracked again. At the clubhouse, he waited and waited and waited, and then was finally told that this latest interruption was a mistake. Dulles hadn't wanted to talk to him at all. As Eisenhower later wrote in his diary, his disposition deteriorated rapidly. His doctor, who was traveling with Eisenhower, put a finer point on it saying his, quote, anger became so real that the veins stood out on his forehead like whipcords. At approximately this time, the president was also delivering information to his golf pro, who was playing with him, of course, that day. And the, the crucial information the president delivered was that his belly was acting up. He'd had raw onions on his hamburger that afternoon and fingered those as the culprit for his maladies. I think those onions are backing up on me, he reported. This did not slow the president, however. He golfed and golfed and golfed and put in 27 holes that day. Then he retired. The indigestion persisted, though, and in the middle of the night, he woke his wife, Mamie, and asked her to summon the doctor, Howard Snyder. Dr. Snyder was summoned, it kicked off a mystery that changed the relationship between the press and the presidency. The careful management of the president's condition, some would say careful misinformation about the president's condition, also may have assured that Eisenhower was in a position to run for re-election in 1956. The mystery surrounds the original diagnosis. For this, we rely on Clarence Lasby's really well-done book, Eisenhower's Heart Attack, which does what you want One of these books to do, which doesn't just talk about the heart attack itself and how it was treated, but it talks about heart disease at the time, how it was a national crisis, and how Eisenhower's obsession with his health helped address that crisis, and then, of course, also the politics of the time. Dr. Snyder arrived with his medical kit, but also the palliative instruments of a doctor treating someone with a cardiac problem, or so the story goes. He had oxygen and drugs and a variety of other things. Eisenhower was experiencing chest pain, so that made sense that he had these cardiac drugs. He administered a variety of drugs, according to the record, amyl nitrate, papervine, and morphine, which he injected twice for the pain. After the second injection, the president's pulse rate shot up like a rocket. Snyder asked Mamie to slip into bed with her husband and hold him in her arms to see if that would calm him down. It reportedly did so. What happened next is where things get a little mysterious. Snyder ruled that Eisenhower was simply suffering from intestinal upset. Putting the blame on the onion caused political economist and journalist Raymond Molly to quip, a little raw onion on a hamburger altered the course of human history. The word was relayed to the press and marked a turning point in relationships between the press and the White House. Here I turn to journalist James Deacon, who writes about... The White House management of the Eisenhower heart attack story in his book called Straight Stuff, The Reporters, The White House, and The Truth. And aside, the word truth on the cover of the book is printed in red. The truth and the White House uh, unfamiliarity with the concept of the truth is not, of course, a new phenomenon, as the red highlighting of the word truth exists in this book, which was written more than 20 years ago. There were 22 reporters who traveled with Eisenhower. They were all staying at the Brown Palace in Denver. Lush digs. If you left your shoes outside the door, noted Deacon, they would be shined for you overnight. All that was on the docket during this vacation time was a meeting of physical fitness experts and doctors that Eisenhower and Nixon were going to preside over in the coming days in Denver. It was part of Eisenhower's effort to improve youth fitness as a way of combating juvenile delinquency and to prepare younger, stronger fighting men for the Cold War. There wasn't much news expected. Each afternoon, there was a short briefing, but never much substance. The reporters, therefore, enjoyed sightseeing, shopping, poker, and martinis. 8 a.m. the morning after Eisenhower's golf game, in which he ate the raw onions, reporters were summoned to the traveling press room and told that the president had, quote, suffered a digestive upset in the night. Later in the day, the same story was told. Murray Snyder, no relation to Dr. Howard Snyder, reported on what the doctor had informed him. In The not famous, Snyder to Snyder colloquy. I just talked to General Snyder. Dr. Snyder was also a general. We do not know if he was a lawyer or a baker. He tells me the president is resting. He said that the indigestion is not serious, and he says that it is the same type of indigestion that many people have had. It is not serious. So what you're saying is it's not serious. Radio stories, afternoon newspapers, and television bulletins all reported that the president just had a rumbly tummy. But then at 2.30, roughly 24 hours after the president had had his episode on the golf course, where he reported that the onions were backing up on him, the news suddenly changed. So this is 24 hours after the golf game. The news changed. It was reported that the president had suffered a heart attack. So why the delay in the reporting? There seemed to be three possible options. One, Snyder delayed the announcement because he wanted to protect the president's health, announcing right away that the president had had a heart attack would create emotional upset for the president and his family. This is what Snyder said in the moment to reporters questioning the 24-hour delay. The second option was that Snyder had been trying to cover from the get-go. And so the decision not to inform reporters was not based on health. It was based on an instinct to cover up that could not be sustained Though, once events tumbled on, reporters who had this view, that it was a cover-up from the get-go, cited certain facts, like the fact that Eisenhower had been walked out of his house and not carried on a stretcher. In other words, walked for the purposes of trying to cover up and make it look like he was more healthy than he was, as opposed to if you'd taken him on a stretcher and just hadn't told anybody because you were worried about the emotional upset it might cause. The third view is that the Dr. Snyder misdiagnosed Eisenhower. As a matter of journalism, the reason Deacon puts his finger on this event is that it raises the central question of modern press press coverage of the presidency. There is a tension between the prudence required in a situation that may have national security implications, and the health of a president in the Cold War certainly had national security implications, and the prudence as a cloak of secrecy, which is initiated not for the sake of protecting the public, but for the sake of protecting the powerful and the ambitious. Clarence Lasby, in Eisenhower's heart attack, has a very thorough investigation of the medical records in Eisenhower's library and delivers a very tough verdict on the doctor. Here's what Lasby writes in his book. Instead of the excellence of medical treatment we assume is customary for our presidents, I found a shocking misdiagnosis in the crucial hours of the heart attack. Contrary to all existing historical accounts, I contend that in the early morning hours of 24 September 1955, Dr. Snyder mistook a coronary thrombosis, for a gastrointestinal problem, waited for 10 hours before he recognized his mistake, and called for help, and conducted an unrelenting cover-up of his error for the rest of his life. Within a month after the attack, Dr. Snyder was planning for the president to run again, and through insight and guile, he created the circumstances to make it possible. As one book reviewer of the Lasby book put it, it hardly stretches the imagination to conceive of Eisenhower dying while Snyder prepared to warn him once again to lay off the onions at lunch. There's a little cluster of medical conspiracy that surrounds presidential health. Did Woodrow Wilson's health that led to the stroke imperil him at Versailles? Or did FDR's heart disease lead him to sell out the United States at Yalta? What about Kennedy's Addison's disease? Reagan's Alzheimer's? Dick Cheney's heart condition was blamed by some who looked for a way to explain his immovability as vice president, though he'd been a congenial guy as a member of the House before he'd had all those heart attacks. There is reason to think people should have been suspicious, particularly at this period with Eisenhower. In eighteen ninety three, Grover Cleveland, informed that he had cancer of the mouth, sneaked away to a friend's yacht to have his jaw removed. He worked with doctors in the press to cover it up for twenty four years. Wilson's cover up of his stroke or that is to say his wife's cover-up of her husband's stroke, led Wilson to be incapable of holding the office. He was incapacitated, essentially, and for 17 months he was a frail invalid while basically his wife was the country's president. And then, of course, FDR, towards the end of World War II, was battling heart disease and cardiac failure. Public didn't know that then. So one of the things we're going to note here in this Eisenhower account, which has already been uh, got the shadow of... Mystery about why they re- misreported for the first 24 hours, it is still nevertheless true that what we are coming upon now is a watershed moment where Eisenhower's illness actually became the first one that was treated in public with respect to a presidency. Because after the initial deception, the president's staff initiated a process of letting the press know everything under the sun. The medical bulletins were shared three or four times a day. Reporters were told what the president had for breakfast, lunch, dinner, how many calories he was getting. There were details about the items inside his vegetable soup, beef, beef bones, to give it taste. But then the fat was skimmed off in order to make it healthy. Reporters were told the color of the president's pajamas and the decor of the hospital. They were told all about the cards and letters that had come pouring in for the president with suggestions of every kind of remedy possible under the sun and regimen that could help with his recuperation. They were told when Eisenhower went into the oxygen tent when he woke refreshed and cheerful. During this period, while Ike was in recuperation in Denver, apparently reporters filed 2,250,000 words to newspapers, wire services, and magazines. On some days, there were as many as five briefings. At one point, the president's doctor reported that the president had a normal bowel movement. Here's how Deakins puts it in his book, The Straight Stuff. This was considered very significant. The theory was that if Ike could go, he must be alive. Nevertheless, there was a lot of soul-searching before the development was printed. In the 1950s, bodily functions had not been invented. At the Associated Press, the bowel movement produced a crisis, but the doctor had announced it. As a matter of fact, he had emphasized it, so it must be important." With a mixture of trepidation and dismay, editors at the Associated Press put the bowel movement on the front page of family newspapers across the nation. The deluge of information ushered in two things. First, it's a full hangout, as is what it's called in press parlance, and that's essentially the strategy of giving reporters every possible piece of information and tidbit they could want as an antidote to their fears. Genuine fears, of course, ignited by the initial missteps of secrecy for the first 24 hours. Or the full hangout is used to... Swamp, an unpleasant disclosure. This is why Chris Christie did a news conference after news was published that some of his aides had blocked traffic on the George Washington Bridge, and Christie did a news conference until reporters ran out of questions to ask. It went on so long. But this also ushered in a new stage of the presidency, which is there were now new expectations on the matters of health, and you could see this moving into all four corners of a president's life. There was no detail that was too small. This set an expectation for reporters and what they would be told, but it also had implicit in inside of it the view that the presidency, the office of the president, was of such import that the smallest elements were necessary to report to people because they were all equally important in terms of national security and the health of the nation. This is the medical expansion of the of the imperial presidency before the Hart incident, it wasn't clear whether Eisenhower w- would run for reelection or not, but of course, the pressure was on Republicans would win if he if he ran, and if not, they might not win, both at the presidential level and also up and down the ticket. One Republican state chairman expressed the feeling throughout the party when he responded to the idea that Eisenhower might not run again in 1956, and he said, when I get to that bridge, I will jump off it. While Eisenhower recuperated, the expectation was that he would be away from the White House about two months. The question of whether the government could operate was actually not that big of a deal if you run through the newspapers. Nixon could handle the ceremonial duties, and while there were several articles about whether the power would need to be formally handed over to the vice president, there was no breathless coverage about the duties of the presidency that would go unattended during that period of time. The country did not seem to be put in peril by a president who was at a commission for two months. But the political speculation was hot and heavy. Two days after the heart attack, a headline in the Wall Street Journal read, President's heart attack changes everything for both parties in 1956. Political leaders see no chance of his running. There was speculation inside that piece that Ike would even resign. On September 30th, seven days after the event, the New York Times ran a piece with the headline, Democrats Bar Illness Politics. Majority Leader Lyndon Johnson, House Speaker Sam Rayburn, and the party's last presidential nominee, Adelaide Stevenson, all met at the Johnson Ranch. Why were they there? (laughs) Because Johnson had had a heart attack and was recuperating, and the Democrats were having a get-together. to just sort of hang out and make sure the majority leader was okay. But when the three of them spoke with reporters, they all said in their own way that they were not going to use Eisenhower's illness for political purposes. Of course, Johnson really had a reason not to use it for political purposes because since he'd had a heart attack and he was recuperating, he couldn't possibly buy into the idea that a heart attack was debilitating because he himself wanted to run someday. Sam Rayburn put it this way, The Democrats have never hated Mr. Eisenhower. We never will. We just aren't built that way. Well, Scotty Reston, the famous New York Times columnist, wrote shortly after the heart attack that the political climate would be changed forever because it had, quote, rested in large measure on Eisenhower's ability to run and win again. This is almost certainly out of the question in spite of the optimistic medical reports out of Denver this afternoon. Why was it out of the question? Back to Reston. Quote, as one distinguished doctor put it here today, trying to carry on the terrible burdens of the presidency for five years after a heart attack is like trying to go 120 miles an hour in the Indianapolis Speedway after you have had a blowout and put a patch on your right front tire. So while the presidency was not seen as the emergency first responder job that it is seen as today, there was nevertheless a feeling that it, that in the presidency it had extraordinary burdens for that one chief executive. Using the Eisenhower scale, then, to evaluate this view of the presidency in the mid-1950s, it was a job defined more by Q2 work, not urgent, but important, than Q1 work, important and urgent. So not every important event, like a hurricane, no doubt important, it nevertheless was not urgent for the purposes of the presidency. But the job nevertheless had a lot of non-urgent, but super important, like the Cold War, duties which pressed upon the presidential brain. Well, how was this seen at the time? Well, Walter Lippman wrote this. Walter Lippman, of course, we all know, was the supremely influential columnist. Mr. Eisenhower's illness has posed in a new form the old problem of the president's powers. Since the early days of the government, Americans have had differing opinions about how much power ought to be vested in the president, how much in the Congress. But in this generation, the question of where power should be allocated has acquired a new dimension. We have become concerned also with the question of how much power the president or Congress can in fact exercise efficiently, responsively, and without subjecting the human beings in the offices to an intolerable strain. We have been made aware of this new dimension, that of the human capacity to carry the load, because the load has become so enormously greater. It has become greater because of the wars of this century, because of the huge growth of the American population, of the American economy, and of the American responsibilities. In the cases of Wilson, Roosevelt, and Eisenhower, we have seen men break under the load. So the Lippmann article goes on to note an extraordinary coincidence, which is that Herbert Hoover, the ex president, had just released his second report analyzing the the office of the presidency and the executive office. And in it, he suggests the creation of an administrative vice president. So what is happening... So an administrative vice president essentially is to take the burdens off the duties of the president. This report was created not in conjunction with Eisenhower's illness, but with just the fact that the executive branch needed a teeth cleaning. And Hoover had been tasked twice once during Truman, now again during Eisenhower, to straighten out the executive office. And what Lippman is putting his finger on is the difference between the administrative duties of a president, uh, which is to say those things that are important and urgent, with the burdens of the office, which are sometimes not urgent but are deeply important. And so his question, Lippman's, upon hearing about Hoover's suggestion that a president should get a vice president for administration— draws in on this distinction. So he asks about a vice president for administration. How much would this actually lighten the load of the president? It is by no means certain and obvious in the sense that the president would have less people he had to see, less papers he had to read and even to sign. It would, of course, help save his time and his energy. But is the strain of the presidency due to the fact that the president is overworked? Or is it due to his having so much responsibility in matters which are so often matters of life and death? We must suppose, I would think, That what is so hard is not the work, but the worry of being president. So here we have this interesting distinction between the load on the growing presidency in the modern age, which again, as we started our story here, is nothing close to the load that's on the presidency now, but that it has two components, the hours in a day component, but then also the worry that rests upon the presidential noggin. Lippmann is dubious that you can add more staff because... It's all about the burdens on the office. And so while the office, we're going back to Lippman here, and so while the office of the president can be made more efficient by administrative reform, by streamlining and the like, the office will always require the whole energy of a very energetic man. So there we are. At this moment, we have the height of concern about the burdens of the presidency, both on the presidential office, could you get it all done, Hoover's report, and the presidential brain, as exemplified by the Lippman piece. And oh, by the way, an election's coming. Surely Eisenhower wouldn't run again. But a strange thing happened. All of those reports from the White House, which were covered so closely and every little possible element of the president's recuperation, created their own momentum good news of the week comes from fitzsimmons hospital denver where the president poses for pictures for the first time since his heart attack september 24th ike took his first steps unaided in his hospital room shortly before emerging out of the sun deck to face the cameras ike's famous grin flashed out hearty as ever pictorial evidence of his continuing recovery the president was getting better by december that was the feeling was this spin Well, Scotty Reston certainly thought so. He wrote article after article slamming journalists for not covering the true risk of Eisenhower serving a second term with a weak ticker. But the reports out of the White House, which may have been coming just to fix that original mistake of not reporting anything for the first 24 hours, ended up turning into a beneficial tool. It was this sort of candor bomb was now being used to shape the news. It's a way in which radical transparency can actually get the people on your side, so that they will then be in a position for you to manipulate them in the future. I mean, Eisenhower thought he could run for a second term, and he thought it was necessary for him too, and he wanted to establish peace overseas and shrink government at home, and so you can make a case that he wanted to carry out his duties of the office, he felt good, and so forth and so on, so that it may not have been a great national deception. But the position that the White House was in as a result of all of this candor meant that people believed and trusted the doctors who then, in February of the election year of 1956, gave a clean bill of health to the president. It is the power of the presidency in this period that shows it had a weight of its own, and the fact that people thought it might be too much from one man testified to the size of the office and its power in American life. Eisenhower was an immensely popular president, engaged in what Reston had called a national love affair with the people. That, in fact, overwhelmed those fears about whether he could handle the office and helped Eisenhower stay and, of course, win re-election. For a more complete treatment of that, you got to go read Lasby's book, which is great, and we'll return... To the heart attack and the role it played in the 1956 election and the steady way in which Eisenhower, in connection with his doctors and press spinners, created this tableau that allowed people to vote for him in 56, even though immediately after the actual heart attack, everybody thought he wasn't even going to run again or might not even serve out the first term in office. That will be for a future whistle-stop before the 2020 elections when whistle-stop returns to being about campaign history and not the history of the presidency. One of the really interesting conclusions about uh, in Lasby's book is that before the 1950s, the people who suffered heart attacks were seen as, quote, cardiac cripples, but Eisenhower's recuperation and, in fact, his successful victory in 1956 changed that mindset. More to the point, Eisenhower's life-hacking instincts, when paired with the instructions of his doctor, led to a change in behavior from the president that would then become a model for the rest of the country. And here's how Lasby puts it in his book. Quote, he was fortunate because the physicians, especially Snyder, explained his heart attack was the probable cause of his own culpability. Their model of disease causation was speculative and filled with question marks. But the president seized upon the few opportunities it offered because he believed that every individual was responsible for the decisions that would keep him alive and well. So, for example, when the president quit smoking after this heart attack, Eisenhower said, quote, I simply gave myself an order. And this is the way he described changing his diet. To the American Medical Association, there are some useless items of food all of us crave and often need, no matter unwisely. We must conduct ourselves with a wary eye on the consequences or suffer, and the choice is ours, and we must act with clear mind and resolution. So there we have the story of Ike's first heart attack in office in 1955, how a initial deception and misdiagnosis created the conditions for not only a new strategy for handling the press, the full hangout, but that stitched the country tighter to the uh, health and daily behavior of the presidency, enlarging the presidency, which gave fears to those like Hoover and Lippmann that worried the presidency was too big for one person. But in so inflating the office and through that new method of press relations created the conditions for Eisenhower's successful re-election in 1956, thereby imposing four more years of presidency for Dwight Eisenhower. That's it for the Whistle Stop this week. Before we send you on your way, I want to tell you about another great Slate show called Hit Parade. Do you ever wonder what makes a song a huge, massive, popular smash that everybody hums for generations? Well, is it talent or luck or timing? Well, it's probably all of that. Also, presidential affection might have added to songs on the Hit Parade. I don't know, but the Hit Parade podcast tells the stories from over a half century of musical chart history through storytelling, trivia, and little song snippets. Hit Parade dissects how that song you love or hate or can't get out of your head or whistle in the days of your quiet contemplation, how it dominated the airwaves and made its way to the top of the charts. Check it out. Hit Parade is published on the last Friday of every month, and you can Find that wherever you find your slate podcasts. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtie. And our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who has researched four different topics this week for me. God love you, Brian. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. You can explore the entire ro- roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And explore them, you should. Thanks for being out there. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation.